Just a heads up, Darksiders. This podcast may contain sensitive or explicit material. Definitely not appropriate for little ears. Listener discretion is advised. Now, on to the show. Today's story takes us to Saanich, a district in the greater Victoria area of British Columbia, Canada. Even though it is in the district of the city of Victoria, Saanich boasts long stretching pastures, rolling beautiful hills and the ocean on all sides. A truly tranquil and serene place to live. In fact, Saanich was voted as the seventh best place to live in Canada by Money Sense magazine, earning this accolade because of the high employment rate, the high earning rate, and the low crime rate. Tanya Van Coylenberg and Jay Cook were high school sweethearts. They had only been dating for six months, but they were smitten with each other. Tanya, 17, had just graduated from high school that summer. She had a big heart, and her caring nature knew no bounds. She loved animals, especially her pet golden retriever, Tessa, and she was planning on working with animals as her career. Jay, 18, loved music and was always serenading Tanya on his guitar. He was a kind, sensitive soul, and he worked at his father's furnace company and it was Jay's job that would lead him to asking Tanya to accompany him on an overnight trip to Seattle to pick up some parts for his father's company from a company called Gasco. She was excited. They both were. Saanich and neighbouring Victoria were beautiful and serene, but the thought of a trip to a big city excited them both tremendously. So, on November 18th, 1987, the lovebirds set off on their adventure in Jay's copper-coloured Ford Club wagon. The parents waved them off and were equally as happy and excited for the young couple. But Jay and Tanya never showed up to Gasco to get the parts and they didn't return home. The disappearance of these two lovebirds sent shockwaves through the quiet, serene, tranquil, low crime rate community of Saanich. And of course, devastated two families whose dreams and aspirations for their beautiful children were shattered. But maybe, just maybe, their tragic disappearance may not have been in vain. This is Darkseid. And I am your host, Suze. So what happened to Jay and Tanya? And why would their disappearance, perhaps, not be in vain? Hmm. Let's find out. Tanya Van Kylenberg and her 21-year-old boyfriend, Jay Cook, left Victoria, B.C. for what should have been a quick trip to Washington State when they disappeared. An investigation is launched and a manhunt started. Everybody worked together, passed along information. Any little scrap that anybody found or knew of was relayed to everybody involved in the case. Even though this was the 80s and mobile phones were not in mass use, Tanya would call her mum several times a day and she always let her know her whereabouts. So, with no call and no return on the 19th of November, Jean, Tanya's mum, began to worry. Bill, Tanya's father, tried to allay his wife's fears, but after placing a call to Jay's family, only to discover that he had also not come home, the pair became frantic with worry and had called in the authorities. As we've just heard in the clip, a huge manhunt was underway immediately. But... The area that the police needed to cover was unfortunately vast. The young couple had taken the Coho Ferry from Saanich on Vancouver Island to Port Angeles on the mainland. From that port, 
Their route would take them down Highway 101 for 40 miles and then exit onto Highway 104 for another 40 miles to reach Bremerton where they would have caught the next ferry to Seattle, a total distance of 80 miles or 128 kilometres. The police searched along both highways, checking the tyre tracks in the verges for possible matches, looking through brush and stopping at every petrol station along both routes to talk with staff who may have seen the young couple. But no one had. So, now the police were a bit stumped. The Ford Club wagon that Jay had been driving would have not been able to make it all the way from Sachin to Bremerton without stopping for fuel. And surely, being two regular teenagers, they would have been hungry at some point and would have stopped for food. But there were absolutely no sightings of them on either Highway 101 or Highway 104. And the police didn't know if they actually boarded the ferry in Bremerton. It really was like looking for a needle in an 80 mile wide haystack. The media wasted no time in broadcasting the disappearance of the two teenagers and urged the public to contact the police if they had seen either the young couple or their very unique and distinctive copper-coloured van. And finally, the police got a lead. A man in Hoodsport was watching the news and recognised the two faces staring back at him from the screen. The couple had come into his petrol station where he worked as an attendant on the 18th of November, asking for directions to Bremerton. And they had also refuelled there. The police now realised that they had been looking in the wrong area. Hoodsport was 40 miles south of the exit to the Highway 104. The couple had missed the exit and ended up staying on the 101. So now the police combed the whole of Highway 101 and the route from Hoodsport that would have taken the teenagers on to Remerton. A further 50 miles or 80 kilometres added onto their already vast search area. Yikes. And in their search, they came across another lead. A lady remembered the couple coming into her deli and purchasing food. And the deli was in Allen, 18 miles south of Bremerton. And finally, the police checked at the Bremerton ferry port where they discovered that the couple had bought a ticket for the 10.16pm ferry on the 18th of November to Seattle. So, the good news at this point is that the police not only had two witnesses that verified they'd seen Jay and Tanya, but the young couple did make it to the ferry terminal. The bad news at this point, other than the fact that the two are still missing, is that both witnesses attested that they had not seen anyone else with Jay and Tanya, so the police did not have a potential suspect. And, whilst the couple did make it to Bremerton Port, the police did not know if they'd actually gotten onto the ferry. No one could verify having seen them on the ferry that night. And if they had taken the crossing, the route from the Kitsap ferry port in Seattle to the furnace shop in the south of the city was densely populated. Whilst this might garner more witnesses, it would make for a slower pace in the investigation due to having more areas to search and more people to interview and time was not on their side. As we all know, the first 24 to 48 hours after any person is reported missing is the most crucial, and the police were way past this time frame. To complicate and slow down their investigation even further, thanks to the ongoing outpouring of the story by the media, many other people came forward with potential leads. But unfortunately, the leads were very generalised and sent the police on several different trails, only to end up fruitless. They needed a break. They needed a strong lead. And they needed a suspect. Quickly. And then, on the 24th of November, six days after the young couple left on their ill-fated trip, a man called the Skagit County Sheriff's Office. 
the call first came in, it came in from a gentleman who lived in the area of Parsons Creek Road, which is in the northern part of Skagit County along I-5. He had been out walking his dog and he saw what he believed to be a person's body uh, roll down the, the side of a ditch. The police were dispatched immediately. The body found was of a young woman. She'd been bound with zip ties, sexually assaulted, and had been shot in the back of the head. Despite the story of this young girl's tragic death being aired on the media and the police investigation that ensued after she was found, the police were mystified as to whom this young lady was. She had no ID on her and no one had reported her missing. Or had they? A few days after the body was found, Skagit County Sheriff's Office received a bolo, or a be on the lookout, from the Royal Canadian Mounted Police for a missing couple, Jay and Tanya. As the picture of the missing couple slowly eked out of the fax machine, the sheriff stared at the picture forming before his eyes. The girl in the picture was the very same girl that lay in his mortuary, Tanya van Koylenborg. So, why hadn't the police made the connection between the missing couple and the body of the girl found? Because Skagit County is 75 miles north of Seattle. The police had been searching only between Bremerton and Seattle. Jean and Bill van Koylenborg were contacted and informed. And they broke down and wept harder than they ever had in their lives. Unfortunately, the police needed someone to make a visual identification of the girl in the mortuary. Bill, Jean and their son, Tanya's brother, John, set out on the 80 mile or 130 kilometre trip to Skagit County. But when they got there, Jean couldn't do it. She just could not see her baby girl lying on a slab, cold and lifeless. Unfortunately, after we got to, uh, got to Cedar Woolley and uh, my dad and I together identified Tanya's body. I mean, she wasn't battered or beaten in that sense, um, but unfortunately was lifeless. It was very hard for me to see how, how devastated my parents were uh, from this, but there's nothing I could do to fix it, so other than spend time with them. Hmm. That poor family. Tanya's post-mortem revealed semen in her underwear. But this was 1987 and DNA fingerprinting was in its infancy. The police did run a DNA test, but with nothing to compare it to, it sat in storage, unusable. With Tanya now identified, the police began to focus their search in Skagit County for Jay. Jay's family were devastated for the Van Coylenborgs and were holding their breath in desperate hope that their son was still alive. However, whilst they waited for news of their baby, the police delivered a devastating blow to them. Because he had not been found with Tanya, he could not be ruled out as a suspect in her murder. The family could not believe their quiet, shy, artistic boy was being considered a suspect. There was absolutely no way he could ever harm anyone, let alone the girl he loved. The police were now concentrated on the Skagit County region of Washington State, but their investigation was pulling up no leads at all. Simply, no one had seen anything. But then, the police received another call. A woman who worked at Essie's Tavern in the city of Bellingham uh, was out on the back porch and she and another employee found several items, namely a purse that had Tanya's identification in it. 
and in further searching, keys to the van were found under the porch along with surgical gloves, a partial box of ammunition, zip ties, and a lens cap for a Minolta camera. The wallet and purse belonged to Tanya, and the zip ties were the same as the ones used to bind her, and the discarded bullets were of the same make and model as that of which the killer had used to shoot Tanya in the head. So, why hadn't the police found these items themselves whilst conducting their search? Hmm. Because Bellingham was some 17 miles or 27 kilometres north from Skagit County. The killer seemed to be traversing the entire coastal region of Washington State. And the police always seemed to be one step behind. The police went to the tavern to retrieve the items and take statements. As they left, one of the officers decided to do a little reconnaissance of the area, just to make sure nothing else was discarded. And this quick, off-the-cuff search led to a major find. As one of the Bellingham sergeants is leaving the scene, he just goes down the back alley about a block to a little uh, Republic parking lot and he sees that copper Ford van. The van was taken for a forensic search. The police were hopeful this would finally give rise to a lead. But after the search was concluded, all the forensics had managed to lift from the vehicle was a palm print from the rear door. All the other evidence inside and outside the van belonged to Jay and Tanya. This palm print didn't match the young couple or any of their family members. And this being the 80s, a time when forensic science was but a twinkle in the eye of scientists, the palm print, without actual fingerprints, couldn't help the police at all. And then, another call came in. On Thanksgiving Day, November 26th, a resident of Monroe County had been out walking when they came across a gruesome scene. The body of a young man. The police arrived and it wasn't long before they identified the body as that of Jay Cook. Jay was found 60 miles or 96 kilometres south of where Tanya was found, 32 miles or 51 kilometres north of Seattle. Whilst Tanya's death had been swift with a bullet hole to the head, Jay, by comparison, had suffered greatly. He was found with twine and a dog collar around his neck, and a tissue and a packet of cigarettes had been shoved into his mouth. He died a slow, agonising, terrifying death from asphyxiation. The autopsy revealed hemorrhaging in Jay's eyes, which proved that to the very end, Jay was battling and struggling to breathe, fighting for his life. His death would have taken many long hours. Jay's family were informed and the bottom fell out of their world. Their last vestiges of hope now shattered. Their only consolation was that because he had died, he was no longer considered a suspect in Tanya's murder. The police started to conduct a timeline of events. The young couple had clearly arrived in Seattle with the intention of sleeping in their van near to the Gasco factory, where Jay was to pick up parts for his father's business the next day. At some point in the evening, the two were intercepted by the killer, a man whom was clearly a predator because he had come so well prepared with twine, zip ties and a gun. He had clearly been looking for a target that night and unfortunately stumbled upon our lovely young couple. From the fact that Tanya was raped, she had been his target, but Jay stood in his way, and because he evidently acted as a barrier to what this rancid, repugnant rapist wanted, he attacked Jay savagely. The killer took command of the young couple's van, 
and drove them 32 miles north to Monroe County, where he dumped Jay, still alive, by the side of a bridge, and drove off with a terrified Tanya, still in the vehicle. He then drove another 60 miles north, where he pulled over in Skagit County and brutally raped Tanya. And because she had seen his face, he had to kill her, swiftly, with a bullet to the head. He then continued north again, another 17 miles to Bellingham, where he dumped the copper van and Tanya's personal effects. But where did the killer go after that? And where was he from? His route had started in Seattle. Was he from there? But his final stop was Bellingham, a total of 109 miles, 175 kilometres, north of Seattle. Was the killer from there? Or from somewhere along that 109-mile route? The police were at a loss. Uncombing such an expansive area was going to be time-consuming and arduous. They started to look at local and state records for known perpetrators of similar crimes because they figured that, given how prepared the killer was and how brutal the attacks had been, he had to have committed a similar crime before. To the police, it had all the M.O. of a serial killer. However, despite having hundreds of potential suspects with similar offences, the police came up empty-handed. In the meantime, the families of Jay and Tanya held the funerals of their beloved children. It was a, yeah, it was a good service. A number of people spoke. There was a, a lot of people there because of, you know, Tanya, as I say, was quite social. So she had all, you know, a lot of young people, a lot of her friends were there. I mean, the community was in shock. I mean, for these two kids to have gone missing and both found murdered, it was, uh, so it was a, there was a lot of people there, as, as happens in these situations. So hard to understand, so hard to fathom how you could, uh, you know, raise kids like that. And then for no apparent reason then, and really as of today, still no apparent reason, um, have them taken in such a brutal way. So I mean, it was just devastating. Both, of them. both families tried to put their lives back together after the funerals. But it was so hard. Coming to terms with their losses and their grief was made even more difficult by the fact that the police just didn't seem to be getting anywhere in their investigation. And then, as if life wasn't hard enough for the two families, they started to receive letters. But these weren't your, I'm sorry for your loss type of letters. Oh no, these were cruel, taunting and sadistic. Both families received the same letters at the same time, mostly on holidays, Christmas, Easter, Mother's Day, Father's Day. The writer claimed to be the killer of the young couple and he would taunt the families by wishing them a nice holiday without their child. <laughs> How can anyone be so cruel? As devastating as these letters were, the police did not take them too seriously. Why, I hear you ask? Hmm. Well, because from their experience of investigating murders in the Evergreen State, not once, ever, did a killer taunt the victims' families in such a way. In fact, quite the opposite. Killers usually did everything they could to hide their identities, especially from the victims' families and, most especially, from the police. However, the police had a duty of care to investigate the letters, and they also needed to inject more leads and suspects into the case. So, they decided to feature the murders, as well as the letters, on America's Most Wanted. And finally, this led to a tip, but not for the killer, for the author of the letters. It turned out to be a 70-year-old transient man whom had serious mental health problems. He admitted to writing the letters as a hoax. 
His DNA was tested against the sperm found on Tanya's clothing and it didn't match. Some three years after the murders, the police were hopeful that they may be able to find a lead in the case when they heard about CODIS or Combined DNA Index System. We heard about CODIS in last week's episode and how it helped Kurt Bloodsworth. But for those of you that have not yet listened to that episode, CODIS is an online database that stores DNA, so matching samples becomes easier and more accessible. The police ran the DNA from the semen found on Tanya's underwear through CODIS. But no match came up. The police were now officially stumped. They were still no closer to solving the murder, and with no new leads or witnesses, the case languished and languished. And for 30 years, it languished. And then, quite remarkably, computer-generated images of a killer who's eluded investigators for decades, a face created with the help of the suspect's DNA. The police found the suspect's DNA at the crime scene and compared it to profiles on databases in the U.S. and in Canada, but never got a match. Now, new technology is allowing them to use that DNA to predict just what the killer could look like. We may be one step closer to identifying their killer. In 2018, the police learned about a new type of technology, phenotyping. This new technology had been developed by a company called Parabon. Using DNA, they were able to study the strands for familiar patterns that indicated hair colour, race, complexion, bone structure and eye colour. Phenotyping was so accurate that it could even create a composite. And the police were so convinced by this new technology that they held a press conference to showcase the composites based on what the suspect would have looked like at the time of the murders. They thought roughly age 25. And also what he looked like through age progression, 45 and 65. The killer was of Northern European descent with blonde hair or light red hair, a light complexion and green eyes. It's just really remarkable. Um, DNA really was a new science back when this happened. Back then, Sergeant Jennifer Sheehan Lee was part of the search and rescue team. These pictures give her hope, but investigators caution these images are not photos, just predictions. There's a good foundation there, but we also need to keep in mind that there's a lot of uh, smaller features that really could be very different because it's 30 years ago. What phenotyping couldn't do, however, was provide information on lifestyle factors that affect a person's look, such as weight, facial hair, tattoos and scars. But despite this, the police were hopeful that this would finally be their big break in the case. The three age composites were spread widely by the media. And sure enough, the leads started to come in. We got probably another 120 tips coming in, but they were tips like the composite looks like the guy that lives down the street, or he looks like a guy that I saw buying something in the store behind me in line. We didn't get any tips that said it was a person that I saw driving a van like that, or a person who was in the area of Monroe on this date and the murder happened. Huh. The police just can't seem to cut a break at all in this case, no matter what avenue they pursue. The founder of Parabon, Dr. Steve Armantrout, and yes, that is really his name, had remained in contact with the police as he was very interested to see if his company's new technology would yield any results in the investigation. When the police relayed that, sadly, it had not, Steve told them about a new technology that his company had just developed that may be able to help them. They were now matching DNA with genealogy databases, you know, like Ancestry.com. People submit their DNA to these sites to find long-lost relatives, and the scientists compare the DNA for familial matches. But 
Today, we're now applying this to a whole new science, criminal investigation, in an attempt to use familial matches to find potential suspects. <laughs> the police were sceptical. This seemed like a really long stretch, and a positive match was dependent on a member of the killer's family having submitted their DNA to one of the genealogy sites. And with 327 million people living in the United States and 37 million people living in Canada, this once again seemed like a needle in the haystack approach. But Dr. Steve Armantrout was so convinced that his new technology would work that he told the police he could have a match for the suspect within a week. And this made the police laugh. After over 30 years of investigation, there was no way that a needle in the haystack genealogy website search was going to bring up a match. On Monday, I received an email from Steve asking me to call him. I was on my day off and I called him. He told me that he has narrowed my suspect down to one name. I was like, I don't know if I can believe this or not. <laughs> I was kind of skeptical. But it was true. A second cousin had submitted DNA into an ancestry database. And through that, the genealogists had worked out whom the suspect was by comparing their findings to public records and family lineage. They had managed to narrow down the suspect to one sector of the second cousin's family tree, a vein of the tree that had only one male offspring. Suspect name ended up being William Earl Talbot. Who? The police went through each and every suspect name that they'd had on their list over the past 30 years, and there was no William Earl Talbot. They checked his criminal record because surely someone who had committed such a premeditated and brutal crime had to have other criminal convictions before or since. He had one, an assault conviction from when he was young in which he received a $150 fine and a deferred prosecution. That was it. Nothing before, nothing after. But they had him. Or did they? Whilst the results from Parabon had led them to a suspect, it wasn't actual evidence. It was merely a lead. They still needed evidence to be able to tie Talbot to the murders. The police started to look into Talbot and put a tail on him. And well, they found him to be quite unremarkable. He worked as a truck driver, the same job that he'd had since he was a teenager. He was in his fifties and quite overweight. He lived alone, unmarried, and didn't seem to have any form of social life or interaction with family or friends. It was hard for the police to believe that such a mundane, mediocre man with such a habitual lifestyle had the wherewithal to commit such a heinous crime. But in order to rule him out or convict him, they needed his DNA. They continued to tail Talbot in the hope that he would discard something, anything that would have his DNA on it. But Talbot didn't smoke. He wasn't a gum eater either. And he seemed to be very tidy with his rubbish and didn't use public bins to throw away refuse from his truck. But he did like coffee. And one day, after days and days of being tailed, Talbot pulled up at a traffic light. He opened his driver's side door and adjusted the mirror on his truck. As he did, a small styrofoam coffee cup rolled out of the footwell of the truck, bounced onto the footplate and then onto the road. Talbot shut his driver door and pulled away as the lights turned green. He hadn't noticed the fallen coffee cup. But the police had. They scooped it up and sent it straight to forensics. But would it be a match? Have they finally found their killer? It was a really, really powerful moment in my life. My eyes teared up 
And I yelled out a scream and said, we got him. So now they knew he was the killer. After over 30 years, they finally knew the killer's identity. And it was time for the police to make their next and final move. Yesterday, we took into custody a 55-year-old SeaTac man who was suspected of the 1987 murders of Jay Cook and Tanya Van Kylenberg. William Earl Tabbitt II has been booked into the Snohomish County Jail on one count of first-degree murder on a warrant out of Skagit County. Talbot was identified as a suspect through the process of genetic genealogy, DNA, which was collected in 1987 at the scene of Tanya's murder, was used to identify his ancestors, which in turn led us to the identification of Talbot. The officer whom had conducted the arrest wasted no time in calling John Van Kulenborg, Tanya's brother, whom had worked extensively with the police over three decades to assist in catching the perpetrator. He told me that, uh, he goes, yeah, we got him, we've arrested him. And uh, I said, really? My first question was, well, where is he? And I said, he's sitting in the back seat. And that was a moment where I realized, oh, this is, this is real, this is unbelievable. This is like Jim sitting a few feet away from this guy now in some vehicle. And uh, yeah, it was just a surreal moment. All those years of all the phone calls and all the information, all of a sudden, finally someone had been arrested. You know, that was, this is the first arrest in 31 years. Hmm. So who is William Earl Talbot II? Washington State-born Talbot grew up in a normal, loving household with his parents and two sisters. But Talbot was anything but normal. From an early age, he terrorised his family. He would regularly beat up his sisters to the point that he broke bones and the girls had to be hospitalised. The police were often in attendance at the house after another one of Talbot's aggressive outbursts. He even threatened to push his disabled father down the stairs when he was just 11 years old. When he was 16, Talbot told his father that as soon as he got his driver's license, he was going to lay the wheelchair-bound man on the ground, take his car and run over him. <laughs> oh, and he even drowned the family cat in the well. I know I say it almost every week, but there we go with those early signs of divergent behaviour. The family eventually sought therapy to try help Talbot with his aggression, but it didn't help. Oh, and Talbot's family home was just seven miles from where Jay's body was found. Talbot had dropped out of high school and struggled to hold down employment until one of his friends got him a job as a truck driver. And his route? Well, it was to deliver goods around Washington State and one of his destinations on his route was just two blocks from Jensco, Jay and Tanya's destination. As soon as Talbot had had his first proper job as a truck driver, a job he could finally hold down. He estranged himself from his family, refusing to talk to them, refusing to turn up for holidays and family events, and refusing to even go to his mother's funeral. <sighs> what a nice chap, eh? Despite the DNA evidence and 30 years of heartache that he'd put the Van Coylenberg and Cook families through, that fetid turd Talbot pleaded not guilty. On June 11, 2019, Talbot's trial began. The one thing that shocked both Tanya and Jay's families is how unemotional Talbot was throughout the entire trial. He did not show an ounce of remorse or emotion. Even when the brutal slayings and sexual assault was read out in minute detail in court. In fact, he was so impassive and stolid that it came across as arrogant. They also noticed just how much he looked like the composite that Parabon had produced. Well, except for the fact that he now had a beard and was uh, 
very portly. Talbot took to the stand in his own trial and told the jury that he had gone all his life as a very passive person, never raising a hand towards anyone. He stated that he rarely ever became angry and was not capable of that level of violence towards another person. Yeah. This didn't carry much weight once his family testified about his aggression as a child and killing the family cat. Talbot's defence rested on the fact that his palm print did not match that found on the van and that he didn't refute that his semen was in Tanya's underwear. Instead, they were claiming that it was a consensual act and that the pair were murdered by someone else after he left the couple. <laughs> As if. And that was the stance that the prosecution undertook, that there was no way the act was consensual because Tanya had been with her boyfriend. The jury took three days in deliberation. State of Washington versus William Earl Talbot II, verse 21. We, the jury, find the defendant, William Earl Talbot II, guilty of the crime of first-degree murder as charged in conduct. Well, hallelujah and amen. But let me tell you, Darksiders, I've watched the video of his trial conviction, and when they pronounce him guilty, Talbot jumps in his chair and gasps. You can hear him at the end of the clip that I just played, saying, he didn't do it. Sorry, Talbot, but irrefutable DNA says that you did. What a cockwomble. He was sentenced to two life terms, the highest that he could be sentenced to in the state of Washington. Today, he is holed up in a Washington prison for 23 hours a day. No one will ever be harmed by him again. But, because he is still professing his innocence, Tanya and Jay's families will never know why he did this to their beautiful children. A tragedy that neither family have ever been able to get over or move on from. Two weeks ago, you heard about the very first conviction in the world in 1988 using DNA, that of Colin Pitchfork in Narborough, England. Last week, you heard about the very first exoneration in the world in 1993 using DNA, that of Kirk Bloodsworth in Baltimore, Maryland. And today, you've heard of the first person caught by using genetic genealogy in 2019. William Earl Talbot II. Now, just a caveat at this point, before I get lots of messages, I am very well aware that genetic genealogy shot to stardom in April of 2018 with its first arrest of the Golden State Killer, the serial rapist and murderer whom terrorised California in the 1970s and the 1980s, one Joseph D'Angelo. And I'm very well aware that William Earl Talbot II was not arrested until May of 2018, one month after D'Angelo. As you all know, I like to cover cases that change laws or law enforcement. So why would I cover the Talbot case and not the Golden State Killer? D'Angelo was the first arrest using genetic genealogy, after all. Well, firstly... The Golden State Killer has been done to death on podcasts. Secondly, I'm not particularly a fan of serial killers. And lastly, whilst D'Angelo was the first person to be arrested using genetic genealogy, William Earl Talbot II was the first to be convicted. In just two decades since its introduction to the world, DNA fingerprinting has permeated saturated and embedded itself as the absolute cornerstone of forensic science and criminal investigation today. It has grown and matured as a science, going from being able to match a single person by their genetic stutter to the point that it can now prove an inherent familial match using ancestral DNA and public records. As this science continues to grow and develop, 
the gap between crime and conviction is continuing to narrow. I personally wonder what this amazing science will discover next, don't you? For the last three weeks we've heard of some pretty heinous crimes. In a way, it's been a bit of a three-parter. I can't wait until I can write the fourth instalment in the DNA journey. But if you need a bit of a reprieve from the macabre, I would like to recommend to you my lovely friend Zoe's podcast. She takes you on the most serene journey of moments of fortitude, insight and serendipity. Her true life stories never fail to make me well up with tears at these amazing moments in time that truly changed people's perception or their lives. Oh, and it is all served up with the most sumptuous, delectable, rich Belgium chocolate accent. A perfect narration to her beautiful, emotive, fortuitous stories. The podcast is called The Airing Cupboard and you can find it on wherever you listen to your podcasts. I highly recommend it. I hope you liked today's story. If you did, please would you rate, review and subscribe my podcast at wherever you listen to your podcasts. Oh, and a favour to ask. Please, can you share this podcast with just one of your friends at least? I would be ever so grateful. And why don't you come join me on my Facebook group? I'd love to have you along for the ride. It's always a bumpy one. So, until next time, stay safe, stay alert. Suze, over and out. Hello, are you still there? If you are, I'd like to welcome you to a new section of the show, The Darker Side. Well, it's not really darker, I'm just calling it that. I know this is outside of the norm. You hear the ending music and the show is over. But I got this idea for a footer, as it were, from the very excellent podcast Murder Mile. If you haven't listened to it, you really must. Michael takes you on an aural tour of murders conducted in a one-mile radius of Soho in central London. He includes sounds of the city and other sound effects to make you feel like you're part of the story. Oh, and he also conducts actual murder mile tours. So if you're ever in London, be sure to join him on one of his tours. Hmm, that's now two plugs for another podcast in one episode. So yes, I got this idea from Michael's Murder Mile podcast, where after the show has concluded, he adds a little footer with information about the story that he wasn't able to include in the episode, either because it didn't sit right inside the story or diverged the story in some way. I realised that this was happening to me also in the last few episodes, that there was information that I really wanted to include but it wasn't pertinent to the flow of the story at that point, or altered the feel and perspective of a particular point that I was trying to get across. So, as they say, plagiarism is the best form of flattery, so I am plagiarising Michael's footer idea. I might not do it each episode. It all depends on whether I manage to include all the information I wanted to share with you. So, with all that said... There were two aspects that I wasn't able to include in today's story, simply because I couldn't find a way to fit them in without it being a standalone passage that didn't fit with the narrative at that point. The first aspect is when I speak of Dr. Steve Armentrout. And yes, that really, really is his name. And the work that Parabon was doing with genetic genealogy. Well, yes, The company was developing this technique, but they were doing it in conjunction with C.C. Moore, a professional genealogist. And furthermore, she was one of a small group of people that actually created the science of using DNA to trace family ancestral lineage. Always fascinated by genealogy, she had started building a family tree in the year 2000. 
A few years later, she started testing the genetics of her father to learn more about the history of her surname, according to the family tree DNA. This led to the testing of 35 of her relatives to unravel her ancestral lines. Soon after, people started approaching her and asking for help with their research of their family history. And a year later, law enforcement began asking her for help as she alone developed techniques specifically for human identification. She is actually the one that found the match between the second cousin and William Earl Talbot II. And today, she is one of the most sought after and leading experts of genetic genealogy in the world and is the chief genetic genealogist at Parbon. I really did try to find a way to include her in today's story, but in all the media clips and documentary clips I could find, it was Dr. Steve Armantrout that was mentioned throughout, as Parabon was his company. And because I'd included these media clips in the story, it was really hard to insert Cece's name and connection without going off on a tangent about her work and life at what I thought was a very crucial moment in the story with regards to its outcome. So I'm glad that I've chosen to plagiarise the murder mile's footer, if only to highlight the outstanding work and contribution to criminal investigation of this rather amazing and outstanding woman. Go Cece. Secondly, today's story obviously discusses how Parabon and Cece Moore, as you are now aware, were able to freely access ancestry sites to compare DNA to potential suspects in criminal investigations. This was true at the point of the conviction of William Earl Talbot II in June of 2019. However, also in 2019, the law changed with regards to freely accessible ancestral DNA. Now, past, present and future participants to an ancestral site who provide their DNA to find familial lineage have to opt in to have their DNA be accessible to law enforcement and to be used to detect suspects. This was done to protect privacy laws, which is right in terms of the law, but the upshot of this is that the number of convictions based on genetic genealogy to catch a perpetrator is quite some bit lower per annum since the law changed. So, just a personal request to anyone out there who is thinking of or who has participated their DNA in an ancestral site. Let's help the police catch more killers. Opt in. Well, unless, of course, you have a body buried in the back garden. So that's it for the darker side. And don't forget, stay safe, stay alert, Suze. This really is over and out. <laughs>